ready for true happiness, for deep fulfillment, for feeling alive, on purpose, and in control of your life again, it's time to be the bold, brilliant, beautiful woman you were born to be. Welcome to the Purpose Girl Podcast. I'm women's happiness and life purpose expert, Karen Rockhunt, and I'm going to teach you how to live on purpose, feel alive, and be happy in every aspect of life. I'm going to get real about my life and interview women who are living on purpose so that you can finally live yours. Welcome to the show. Hello, 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 Purpose Girls. So when I was in graduate school, a doctor came to speak to us. He was the head of palliative care for children, pediatric palliative care, meaning that these children were in their final stages of life. They were going to die of their illness. And he came to speak to us about hope. And it might seem like, why would a doctor, what would a doctor who works with children at the end of their life, who has to give such horrendous news to the parents and be there with these families, what would he know about hope? But what he shared with us, this is Dr. Chris Futner at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. What he shared with us is that he and his entire team were trained in the science of hope. Because when a child was sick, of course, all the family hoped for, all they wanted was for the child to be well again. And he and his team would say to them, if we can't give you that, what else are you hoping for? And the parents, the family, of course, that might even repeat again, all I want is for Johnny to be well. And he would say, and if we can't give you that, what else are you hoping for? And he would keep asking the question until the parents or family would come up with something that would give some ease to the child, some ease to the family. Like maybe we're hoping that he can pass away at home or we're hoping that he can see his grandparents one more time. We're hoping that she's able to be have a visit with Mickey Mouse or something, whatever it was. And then he and his team at the hospital would fulfill that hope for the family. And it gave them something. It gave them comfort. It gave them something to look forward to. It gave them some sense of happiness in the midst of the trauma. And what I loved about this doctor, what I love about this doctor is he was a man on a mission. It was beyond being a doctor. It was about giving families hope. And my guest today does the same. Lisa Buxbaum is a woman on a mission who gives hope to children, to their families, to adults who are also facing illness. And she is the perfect person to talk to us about a mission of hope and how every single one of us really is on this earth for a mission of hope. And the question is just, what is our particular mission? What is ours to do? And so I want to introduce my incredibly purposeful, my incredibly beautiful, my incredibly just heart-centered, loving, dear friend, colleague, and guest to you today. Let me tell you about Lisa Buxbaum. Lisa Honig Buxbaum is a passionary, I love that word, that's what she calls herself, a visionary driven by great passion and action. She is an intuitive healer, a well-loved inspirational speaker, workshop leader, and a master teacher who has shared her wisdom with thousands of people throughout the world. 
three experiences with death and illness in her family during a 10-month period motivated her to launch Soaring Words, a not-for-profit organization that she founded to inspire millions of ill children and their families to never give up. Since 2001, Lisa has shared her Soaring into Strength success strategies with over 500,000 people through Soaring Words. She's been featured as an expert on ABC News, Fortune Small Business, USA Today, Delta Sky Magazine, and many more. She's been a keynote speaker, moderator, panelist at dozens of professional and scientific conferences, including the International Positive Psychology Association, European Conference on Positive Psychology, Canadian Positive Psychology Association, International Positive Education Network. Lisa has led workshops for health and human services agencies, housing projects, community centers, universities, medical schools, nursing schools, including at the University of Pennsylvania, UVA School of Medicine and School of Nursing, NYU, Columbia. She's led professional development workshops at dozens of Fortune 50 companies, including Eli Lilly, Johnson & Johnson, Facebook, Google, J.P. Morgan Chase, New York Life, Verizon. She graduated with honors from the University of Pennsylvania. She holds an MBA in marketing from Columbia, Graduate School of Business, a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, which is how I know her. We're colleagues in school, I think one year apart. She has a certificate from the American Institute for Mental Imagery, a certificate in narrative medicine from Columbia University. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. She is the author of Soaring into Strength. She lives in New York City with her husband, Jacob, her two grown sons. She has such beautiful energy. She is an incredible, incredible woman. And I'm so grateful, Lisa. Welcome to the Purpose Girl podcast. Thank you. It's uh, really inspiring to be here. Mm. Well, you are a woman who has inspired me since the minute I met you. Right back at you. Oh, well, thanks, darling. <laughs> you were a year ahead of me and yes. gave a workshop and webinar to our class and all the graduates that came before on purpose. And I remember listening to you thinking, we're sisters from a, a different mother. Yeah, <laughs> sisters from a different mister. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the things I call that chosen family. Mm. Oh, I love that, Lisa. I love that. You know, Lisa, you, I've told you this before, more than anyone I know, you are a woman on a mission. And it's a delight when you and I are at a conference together, I'll sometimes play a game like, where's Lisa? And I always can guarantee that you are, you have such a mission around soaring words and inspiring and healing and helping to heal these children and their families and now adults that you are. I can see you sharing your message. It's like when there's a keynote speaker who could help these kids help the mission of Soaring Words, I just see you. You are the first person to go and to talk to them. And it's always so inspiring. I'm like, look at her go because you're you're so on a mission. And that's important because it's not about me. It's about them. Right. That's a really important distinction. Some, you know, I'm from New York. I walk fast. I talk fast. <laughs> but I'm not doing it for self-aggrandizement or yeah, gratification. I, I wake up every morning saying, okay, God, it's a new day. Here I am. Let's do this. And uh-huh. I do everything to make it happen. And when my head hits the pillow at night, I'm usually pretty exhausted and used, you know, used everything. But it, it's really for this greater purpose, which I feel really grateful that I am living. Mm. We're grateful you're living it. So I shared in your bio a little bit about you. Tell us how you came to your purpose. 
Well, I was always a good girl, a nice person. My parents were both very, um, they lived the Jewish tradition of tikkun olam, healing the world, taking care of other people larger than your family or your immediate community. My father um, was a law school graduate, so he was always helping everyone. And my mother, both of her parents were deaf, and she founded a program for adult deaf people who at that time, back in the 1980s, were just getting sixth grade or eighth grade education, sitting home or working in factory jobs. They were really treated as second-class citizens. And she got them their GED high school equivalencies and then got them placed in meaningful jobs and companies. And that just enhanced their self-esteem and made their lives wonderful. These were people who were parents and grandparents and fully capable. It's hard to imagine this was before the internet, before TTY machines, and before all the technology that made these people not isolated. So I had amazing role models in my parents, and they always encouraged me to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. So I played guitar, I sang, I danced, all the purpose girl kind of things that <laughs> expressed my exuberance and my love. That's and I would yeah, I would play my guitar, you know, at senior citizen homes and, and in talent shows and with friends. But I always loved people and loved connecting with people in deep and meaningful ways. I was running a successful award-winning marketing communications firm here in New York City. I was 30 years old. I just had my first child, Jonathan. And I left the corporate world because even though I was on a really nice trajectory there, it was very corporate and it was very constraining and all the women who were 10 or 15 years older than me said, don't do what I did. Mm. And I said, what did you do? <laughs> they said, I didn't have a family. I gave it all up for this. And they were pretty miserable about those choices. Mm. So that was really helpful that some of those people that were the generation before me um, were really good role models of how to be great in business and great in their career. But They'd really made too many sacrifices that they regretted, not me. Mm -hmm. So I just decided that whatever I was doing, I was going to do really well. So when I worked at the corporate ad agencies, I launched an account management training program for all the young people because hmm. they were excited and reading ad age cover to cover like I was. And the people at the top were talking about their Jaguars or their mistresses or their, I don't know, I, I never watched Mad Men because I lived it. Right. <laughs> I was the 25-year-old sweet young thing. And actually Jane Moss, who is the woman who Mad Men was modeled on, she was my friend and mentor because mm. I was on the board of Advertising Women in New York. But I was doing a lot of pro bono work at the ad agencies. I was always gravitating toward that and running Lipton Tea or running, you know, Dixie Paper accounts. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward, after I had my first child, I thought the clients love me. When they look around that big conference room table with 30 or 40 people, no matter how senior they are, they're all looking at me because they knew I had honesty and authenticity. Mm. They knew I wasn't trying to sell them the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm 30 years old. I can do this myself. So I started my own ad agency, which required a lot of bravery and courage, but I figured oh, yes. I could always get another job. And I did that for nine years. And um, during that time, uh, my first client was a homeless shelter for battered women. I did a lot of pro bono work. I did the national advertising campaign for Take Our Daughters to Work Day. Oh, Back wow. in the day when it was yeah. Take Our Daughters to Work Day. Um, like when it first got started? 
Yes, by the Ms. Foundation for Women. Wow. It, the purpose was that the Carol Gilligan research out of Harvard, when girls become 12 or 13, they start caring more about their appearance and stop participating as much in class and start acting goofy and more um, withdrawn in front of the boys. So Take Our Daughters to Work Day was a clever idea to get young girls into companies with their dads or their moms. And then they'd start asking questions like, where are the women or how many people are running the company? And you know, it was kind of subversive in its brilliance. So yes. I did that national ad campaign for them. Amazing. And, and a lot of other things. And then, um, you know, I was very gratified, very happy. And then um, tragedy struck our family um, with what we call a trifecta of um, really bad things. Mm. Um, and that's when I really um, was shown from a calling what my true purpose is and, and basically why I was born mm. um, to, to do this work that I'm doing the past 18 years. Mm. Mm. So you had a trifecta of pain. Yes. And in that, how did you, because a lot of people out there are so curious, how do I discover my purpose? And one of the things that we know from the research is that trauma is one of the places where people end up really discovering their purpose. You know, we take a situation like the Susan G. Komen Foundation, where Susan Komen was dying of cancer, breast cancer, and her sister promised her on her deathbed that she would do everything she could to eradicate it. And then the foundation was born, or Mothers Against Drunk Driving was because of these mothers' children that were killed by drunk drivers. So for you, the, that trifecta led you to know that you needed to work with sick children. Yes. Well, actually, I had a little assistance from above. <laughs> so um, I got a phone call at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, my only sibling and younger brother, Gary, uh, had died. Um, the call came from um, his friends and his fiance who were by his side in Florida. I was in a deep sleep I had two young children. Jonathan was just nine and a half years old, and Joshua was three. And, uh, you know, everything was okay. Um, my dad had had a bout of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Some grandparents had died, but, you know, they were really old. So I really, you know, life was pretty good. And um, I thought I was very empathetic and loving and intuitive about all of that. But I think until your heart's really been ripped um, you can't fully appreciate the depth of people's pain or grief or loss. Mm. So three hours after the phone call, I had to tell my parents the terrible news in person that their son had died. Mm. And then five weeks after that, so we sat Shiva, we you know buried my brother, and then we sat for a week having people visit our home and pay their condolences. And then we got up from that, we flew to Florida, we closed out my brother's house because five weeks after Gary died, my dad was being admitted to Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center for a bone marrow transplant because his non-Kotchkin's lymphoma, the worst kind in the worst stage, had come raging back less than oh. 10 months later. Oh. So here, my mother and I had just lost Gary. We were looking at daddy thinking, how is this happening again? And that's where we were. So my mother and I were sitting on uncomfortable plastic chairs in the stem cell transplantation unit because they couldn't find a donor match for Charlie, my dad. So he was the match. Anyway, he was in isolation for four weeks and I would sit by his side six days a week. I took one day off 
to be with my kids and family. And mm. my mom was there every day, totally heroic. And then he got better and he came home the week before uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And we started being really grateful for that and mourning Gary because we had to put that on hold to put all of our energy to keeping my dad positive. Right. Every single day, my mom and I made messages and signs and contests. And every single patient came to my father's room on that oncology floor because they wanted to win the riddle of the day, the joke of the day, the contest <laughs> of the day. And we created so much excitement and love and energy that mm. I learned from that experience that your attitude is an integral part of healing. Mm. So fast forward, I'm in the middle of Las Vegas launching the largest telecommunications company in the world. It's a Japanese-owned company that hired my company, Box Tree Communications, a woman-owned business to launch them, relaunch yeah. them into North America. That's really unheard of. Amazing. But the phone rings, and we had Broadway actors. We won Best of Show. Wow. And my husband said, I need to speak to you right away. So I said, Honey, I love you. I can't talk to you now. I'll call you back later. The show's starting in 20 minutes. And just as I was hanging up the phone, he screamed, Lisa, don't hang up. Jonathan is catastrophically ill. I need to speak to you immediately. It took nine minutes to walk to the end of the trade oh. show floor. Oh. And he started saying things, rheumatic fever, Sidham's chorea, mitral vitral regurgitation. My son had strep. He went to school. The symptoms dissipated, but the strep grew into rheumatic fever. Every mother thinks her child's one in a million, mine was, oh. and he had heart damage and neurological damage. Everyone talks about 24-7 with our technology and we're so connected, we're so important. But when your child is ill, your world stops. And I flew home through the night. My husband got me on the first flight out of there, which was at midnight. So I launched the trade show. I hosted the dinner for 75 clients and then I left. Mm -hmm. And for the next four months, I stayed by my son's side um, because he had was twitching and drooling, heavily medicated, and he was really trashed and he needed his mommy. You know, children want their parents, but a lot of times they want and need their mommy. Yes. It was a really narrow place. And the only way I kept my sanity was that my mother and our babysitter, two days a week, they would come out and they would watch the kids so I could keep my business so we wouldn't lose like our livelihood. And my husband drove back and forth every day to the city. But every morning from five to six in the morning, I would walk along the beach because the doctor, the head of neurology said, get out of Manhattan, which is an island surrounded by water, but go be by the sea, go be by the ocean, get your son out of his apartment. It's so depressing. All his friends are in school. So we rented this little cottage and we lived there for four months. Mm. And I would walk along the beach crying and praying and singing every morning. And the name and the feeling soaring words came to me from mm. above. I saw my whole life. I had the chills and I knew that I was receiving a gift. Wow. And I came home and I wrote that little, that word, soaring words on my idea pad. So as my son got better and as our life started to return to normal, this feeling for soaring words kept getting stronger and stronger. And when I'd go to the hospital, pediatric cardiac waiting room, I'd see all these children and families and everyone looked really sad and no one was looking up or smiling. None of the children were playing with the toys. And when I went to the pediatric neurology waiting room, it was the same situation. Mm. 
looked around the room of, you know, in New York City and all the big cities, people come from many countries, people come from all different backgrounds, all different zip codes. Everyone is there. It's just humanity. Yeah. And there was such a sense of shared sorrow, but shared humanity. And I looked at all of those children and I really, my heart just got bigger and bigger because I feel, and it sounds corny, but it's so authentic. These children are my children. These children are all of our children. And I knew what I was going to do. I knew all the things we so desperately needed that didn't exist when my son was ill. And I just set out creating them, writing, coloring, using magic markers, using crayons, using fables and stories and paper bag puppets, not the gizmos and gadgets and apps and all of that like kind of mind-numbing stuff, yep. but just wholesome things because a lot of children, when they're heavily medicated or neurologically impaired, they can't do those gizmos and gadgets like they did before they were ill. Yeah. Now, I know there's a lot of therapeutic benefits to those, but my way was to have it be old-fashioned and reading and writing and listening and sharing. And I just started creating the curriculum and the programs. And we would go into an inner city school and test out our curriculum and programs. We would do 10-month programs once a week. And then we'd run to a hospital like New York Weill Cornell, one of the best hospitals in the country, every week for 10 months. And then we'd make alterations and we'd go back and we'd go to our programs and housing projects. And we just were building, building, building. And my assistant, Greta, who's been with me for 18 years, we were running so fast and you know, it just grew and grew. And then I'd go to a conference and meet someone who was the global head of research for Eli Lilly. And he flew me to Indianapolis and they gave us a grant to launch this with 1500 kids and 500 Lilly employees. And then I met someone at a conference that she was a global person at Johnson and Johnson. And she invited me to be the keynote speaker for her division. And it just following that open door with men and women who I would just, I had a scrapbook. I would show them pictures with handwritten mm. calligraphy, you From know, my kids. handwriting. And they would say, this is great. And I'd say, how can we partner? How can we do this? So it's grown organically. Um, it's grown, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. Sure. But um, it's just really very gratifying because the kind of emails or letters I get are, you know, you changed my son's life or you were the only person in Soaring Words was the only thing that was speaking to me. Everyone was telling me what to do. I felt so guilty as the mom. I felt so guilty that there was nothing I could do to help my child. And, and that article or that video that I watched or that podcast I listened to with Karen, Karen Rockhine and you about purpose, that gave me hope. Mm. That spoke to me. And a lot of these phone calls or emails we get um, – are like at two in the morning when they can't sleep or at two in the afternoon when their child is getting the medical procedure. Right. And they have nowhere else to go and they have no one else to talk to. And there are, there you and your team are and soaring words. And so I, I just have to say, Lisa, first of all, your son is healthy. Jonathan just became a daddy. Uh-huh. Uh- Ah, her weeks ago today. Yes. Oh, look at that smile. And see, y'all can't see. I always can see my guests and y'all can't see her, but the smile with, you know, being a grandmother is just so beautiful. So Jonathan is healthy. That's, I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that. He and Evelyn are, are you know, wonderful parents. They love oh. baby Charlotte. 
And they told us a few months before she was born that they wanted to name her Charlotte because they wanted to call her Charlie in honor of my dad who passed away uh, two and a half years ago. And when they told me that, I just, it was like amazing. She is just, she came out smiling and she's a smiling, happy, serene baby. Beautiful. And just seeing the vulnerability of a newborn has really rededicated me. I've always loved hanging around the neonatal intensive care unit. After I do a hospital visit with a delegation or group of, you know, funders, I say to the people, you know, when I escort them out and say goodbye and everyone's hugging, I say to the child life people, take me now to the places that we couldn't take them to. Mm. So I've seen a bunch, seen a lot. And to see the miracle of a healthy baby who's just so vulnerable and precious, and all children are vulnerable and precious. And uh, now that I've started working with social service agencies, um, there's a lot of suffering here and around the world uh, with uh, domestic abuse and intense poverty and all of the myriad of attending medical things that can happen because of that. And Yet, these children are resilient, and these parents, they have nothing. The child is going to leave the hospital with the onesie on the child's back. Mm -hmm. But they have everything because they have their dignity and they have their love. And I feel that um, by giving them these tools, by connecting to the leading experts in the world on post-traumatic growth or happiness or optimism or gratitude, not in a highfalutin 25-syllable PhD words that no one can pronounce or spell, just talking to them real straight in real language. I want to be that person for them that if they hear about a child or a family or an adult that is grappling with a crushing medical setback, they would go to Mm soaringwords.org. They would check out an article or a podcast or a video and send it to their loved one. Uh, You mentioned the Susan G. Komen Foundation. I think about that every day or Habitat for Humanity. Someone said to you, what should I do? We want to raise money for breast cancer. We want to build homes for homeless people. I want Soaring Words to be that destination that becomes just a well-known and well-loved place Mm. because no one is doing what we're doing. There's, I live in New York city. There's 65,000 not-for-profits in New York city alone. And I don't look at that and think of it as competition. I say, great. There's so much need. There's room for everyone. But my purpose is to not look at the illness, not find a cure, but to look at the child, Mm. look beyond the illness, look beyond the medical presenting diagnoses and symptoms and go inside to the soul, Mm. go inside to that person and say, you know, what do you need today? Mm -hmm. What do you want? Sort of what you do. What do you want? What What do you need? Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Giving, giving, you know, beautiful tools. Like you said, it's coloring, coming up with strength superheroes, you know, using the, the basics to bring some joy to these to children and to their families. So you, you mentioned post-traumatic growth, Lisa, and I've talked about it on the podcast before, but not in a while. So I think it's, it's important to bring it back up again. We're very familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder, where with trauma, we become anxious, we become stressed, we have all sorts of depression And fewer people are familiar with post-traumatic growth, which is the experience of finding 
some sort of beauty, some sort of gift, some sort of appreciation of life or new spirituality or renewed relationships, finding that positive meaning in the trauma and therefore growing. And so, Lisa, you're such a beautiful example of post-traumatic growth. I wonder if you would share a little bit about how you see not only yourself coming through this, but how any woman who's listening to this could take an experience like yours, because we're all suffering in some way, whether yes. it's your child is ill or you know, a woman listening has depression herself or a parent is sick. So how could we really come through challenge with post-traumatic growth? So Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun are the people who have been studying this for 35 years. I just want to give a shout out to them. Rich is a personal friend and mentor. Mm. Um, and what I've noticed in the past 19 years is a process called habituation. It means that whether you're a breast cancer survivor or patient or you're a mom of an ill child, you're habituating to that role of caregiver. You're habituating to that role of patient. You're habituating to the role of sickness. It's like a black cloud is kind of hovering over you and your family and your loved ones, and it's coloring everything. So what post-traumatic growth does, specifically the five domains, is what Tedeschi and Calhoun noticed is that actually 67% of people experience post-traumatic growth, but we just hear about post-traumatic stress disorder because of the negativity bias in the media. So for me, it meant that when Gary died, when my daddy had the cancer, when my oldest son was catastrophically ill, and then when we recovered from that, because it was a trauma, now, we, Tedeschi's very specific. No one wishes for these things to happen. Mm -hmm. So I want to just make that loud and clear. We don't get like points for like, can you top this? Oh, let me tell you about my. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, that's like really bad for your physical, mental, and psychological health. But what there are, are these gifts, these domains that can come out of it where people have reported personal strength. So I always thought I was strong. I always thought I was present. But I got to tell you, when you're sitting there and your dad is fighting for his life day after day, I was strong. I showed up. Mm -hmm. What a gift I have mm -hmm. that I know that that's who I am. I mm -hmm. thought that's who I was, but that is who I am. Yes. Valuing relationships more. I loved my parents so much. But after my brother died, while I couldn't fill that hole, I didn't try to make their life better or fix it because that would be really disrespectful to my brother and his life and also condescending and impossible to do for my parents. Right. But we just valued our relationships so much more. There became a whole other language of unspoken language, a look, a smile, a, a hug that we just knew because we knew what we were going through. Mm -hmm. he heightened appreciation of life. Uh, my mother had friends who would come every day uh, Tedeschi and Calhoun call these expert companions, and they would walk her. They would just go for long walks in the public parks near their home. For me, heightened appreciation of life is that when my son was able to sit up and when he was able to ride his bicycle and go back to the fourth grade and become, you know, a college graduate and a grad, you know, a father, I don't take anything for granted because I can remember in the distant past what it was like to not know if the new normal would ever go back to something that was... If he would ever be able to become a father or if he would ever, right. you know, live long enough to go to college. That's right. Right. So, so that heightened appreciation of life. Yes. of life. Yes. And then 
greater spirituality or existential experiences or awe and transcendence. Now, I live my faith. I'm part of a synagogue community. I observe all the holidays. We keep a Sabbath every week so that I unplug and recharge and really take that time to savor life and and everything, food on the table, friendship. But when I'm talking about spirituality, I don't want people to think, well, I'm not religious, I'm a lapsed Catholic, or I'm not good. I'm talking about the sense that there's something larger than ourselves, Mm -hmm. that we're part of a larger whole. Some people in recovery call that higher power or HP. Um, At the beginning of hearing that term, I thought, why are they talking about Hewlett Packard and their printers? (laughs) (laughs) What does that have to do with recovery? (laughs) Some people call that God. Yeah. Some people call that Buddha or Jesus or whatever. But the point is that awe and transcendence, you can find it in nature. For me, it's going to the ocean. For other people, it's just looking at the sky. That's another one of those benefits that people tend to gravitate towards or pay attention to more as a part of post-traumatic growth. And I have to say that for me, nature, walking in Central Park every day, being able to just sit and look up at birds flying in synchronistic patterns. That was really very, um, really rejuvenative for me. And it really, really gave me hope. I don't have to do anything except appreciate this and silence and being alone with myself and feeling the feelings and then moving on because I did not want my whole life to be defined by the loss and the trauma. Right. And that's a choice that everyone listening today can make. Whatever you're going through, you have a choice that you do not have to be defined by the deficit. You can be defined by your character strengths, your dignity, your grace. What Karen and I are saying, we're not saying that this is easy. This is hard. We're talking about trauma. We're not talking about breaking a fingernail, Mm. having a flat tire in your car, or going to a movie, or going out to dinner, and you, you didn't like it. It sucked. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about trauma. And I think, you know, it's interesting because trauma, if we look at a psychologist's definition of trauma, then it is a sudden life-threatening situation to you or someone that you love. And I also think of it, and I've heard some psychologists refer to it as like a big, a capital T or a little T. And by by capital and little, it doesn't mean that one is greater than the other. I also think of trauma as what may have happened when you were in, in middle school and the girls weren't wanting you to sit at their table. Right. Or that you were in a family where you know, your older brother would beat you up. And you might think, well, older brothers do that. Yeah, but it actually leaves. I mean, this is the stuff that leaves a lot of trauma uh, in our bones and in our cells. Mm -hmm. Invisible scars. Invisible scars. And so the traumas that we experience are are deep. And I actually believe most of us have experienced, the statistic I've seen is that 80% of people will experience a trauma. I bet it's closer to 100 Mm -hmm. when we define it in this broader sense. And the, the opportunity here is to look at that trauma and say to yourself, have I strengthened relationships or do I have a new appreciation for life from it? And if not, can I? Can I take that pain and flip it 
into purpose, which gets us to the fifth one, right? We've covered yes. four. Yes. We get to the fifth one. Yes. Which is yes. saving that one for last. Oh, Lisa. Good. New possibilities, discovering and deepening your purpose. And here, what I want to say is, I don't want you to think I think I'm Mother Teresa or Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King, because like no one wants to be that person. I don't want to put myself on a pedestal and make other people feel less than. Finding your purpose and living your purpose could mean something like, I want to bring joy and radiance to people that I encounter, mm. or I have a, an elderly neighbor and I help them do their groceries once a week. It could be something really specific mm-hmm. and not life-changing, but the Talmud says that if you change a life or save a life, you save a world. So. It might just be a small act for you to do something that's purposeful, but to the recipient, it could be much larger because it could be the spark that gives them hope to believe that they're not isolated. And the number one thing that I've seen over these years doing Soaring Words, going to over 196 hospitals around the world, that people, when they're grappling with serious challenges and setbacks, they feel isolated, bereft of hope, alone. Why is this happening to me? No one understands me. I'm totally alone. So any purposeful action, any kind gesture that you can do that's part of your purpose or your mission or the way you see yourself in the world could really light a spark for someone else. And also it will light you up. It will make you feel so great. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. You know, when we are, and I love what you're saying, purposeful action, right? Purpose is actively contributing, giving your gifts to something larger than yourself, right? It's being that, that active sense of making an impact And what I so appreciate about what you're saying, Lisa, you're on a mission, right? It's like you have that, that one purpose that people, you know, I think a lot of us really want. And it's like, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? And it came to you in, in the worst of ways. I wouldn't wish upon you or anyone that their child became ill and that they had two other circumstances. And if you're out there and you're like, but I don't, I don't know what my mission is yet what we're talking about here is having a blueprint that when you see someone that is suffering, you see someone in challenge, ask your heart, what can I do? What kind of action could I take? What would be helpful and supportive? And that it will give you a mission, even if it's a mission in the moment, a mission in the moment that someone on your street lost a loved one and you bring them a meal or a mission in the moment that after hearing this podcast, you think, I do know someone whose child is sick and I'm going to turn them on to Lisa's website. The mission in the moment may lead to some life trajectory mission. We just don't know. Right. And it's, again, it's just for me, I go to the JCC three, six days a week. Which is the Jewish and, Community Center. In case right. It's like 10, 10 blocks away from my house. <laughs> it's, you know, a Y. And I, I take Pilates, I swim, I do the elliptical. And there's a lot of people who work there. And when I get there at 6.30 or 7.30 in the morning, they've been there since five in the morning, which means they had to get up like practically in the middle of the night or the early hours and get there. So I always give them a big hello and a smile because I'm sure that there's people who are complaining that the towel wasn't dry or the shower wasn't working or the air conditioning in here. It's too too hot, too too cold. cold. Yeah. 
and they light up. So that's what I mean by being purposeful. It's a small action, but that fits into my larger mission, which is to be a source of light and joy and radiance to people that I see. Mm. Um, ooh, now there, ooh, I want to pause that real quick. <laughs> Lisa's mission, and I want to pause this because I want each of you to hear how purpose sounds. Lisa's mission is to be a source of light and radiance radiance and grace and grace i wasn't writing it down because y'all would have heard the this pen scribble to be a source of light and radiance and grace and that is actually what purpose is so many people think of purpose as to be an attorney or to be a teacher or to be a mom or to be a dad those are roles that we play and we play multiple roles in our life the overarching purpose though is this statement that begins with the word too to be a source of light and radiance. Mine is to inspire, encourage, and empower people to pursue their dreams. Yeah. Oh, Lisa's giving me a dance. I love that. Yay. So it begins with the word too. And if you're out there and you don't know, obviously there are multiple episodes of the Purpose Girl podcast that take you through process. Just feel into what is yours to help? What way would you like to light up the world? And I think you raise a really essential point. And Jane Dutton, our friend and mentor who ran the Compassion Lab at University of Michigan, has uh, done a whole lot of work on job crafting and high quality connections. And basically, her most famous study around this area revolved hundreds of custodial workers in a Midwestern hospital. So, I mean, I can't think of many jobs that have less status than being a janitor in a hospital. There's a lot of really disgusting things that they have to clean up, and it's a very important job. And in a nutshell, the ones who took their job as helping the patients and the family stay positive, giving them a smile, saying a kind word, they thought they had the most important- Creating a clean environment. Yes, they thought they had the most important job and it had a lot of meaning and they felt great about themselves being part of the larger hospital community. The ones who were complaining that they had a lot of chemicals to carry and their back always hurt, no one respected them. Those people, um, you know, they had more health issues and they were grumpy and they didn't really have a purpose. Same job, same hospital, but it's a choice. Mm. And I think Karen's point that, It's not about having a high status job because we both came from high status careers and, you know, high status companies. And those are great. I mean, because a lot of people in those companies are doing very purposeful things by using the clout and the resources of those companies to change a lot of lives. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, purpose is really you being you. Mm -hmm. It's you and your most, you're at your most authentic self. And what I want to say also is that every single day I have hundreds of opportunities to be that and hundreds of opportunities to not. Mm. When you come home from a long day and you're hangry or, you know, a little <laughs> depleted. Hangry, and if everyone doesn't know that term, it's you're hungry and you're angry. angry at the, it's like you're, you're so hungry that you're angry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so we have a little rule, my husband and I, it's like, make sure you eat something before you come home because I don't want to get that when you walk in the door. Have the power bar on the way home. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But the point is that research shows that people tend to hurt people, hurt people. Mm. So people tend to lash out and save their least purposeful behavior, their least elevated behavior 
for those closest to them. So that could be friends, family, the people who they, they're stuck with you, right? Yeah. Or your coworkers. So every day you have the choice to be your most purposeful self with those closest to you. And that's really for me where the rubber meets the road. That's really for me where I get the best opportunities to practice this. Wow. It's so incredible, Lisa, because here you are truly a woman on a mission, right? A mission to bring hope to families around the world, 196 hospitals. I mean, thank you for what you're doing. You This big mission. And what you're saying is it's those mission moments, right? The, the moments to be purposeful throughout the day, to add radiance to the cashier at the grocery store or to the gentleman that's walking by you on the street, that those are the moments right. to really show up. And those are moments all of us can do. And yep. this is, you are such a woman on a mission. I, I am just so inspired by you always, always. And I would love to let people know where they can find you and learn about your programs and hear your podcast. So it's uh, soaringwords.org, soaringwords.org. And our podcast series is called Soaring into Strength because soaring stands for our model in positive health, which is shifting optimism, altruism, resiliency, imagery, narrative, and gratitude. Mm. Those are the seven core areas that I've noticed over the last 19 years where people can really um, elevate themselves and their well-being, even in the midst of very challenging times. And that's why my book, Soaring into Strength, out of the thousands and thousands of people that I've personally had the honor and privilege to meet, I've picked 15 stories of people who are really exemplars for resilience or altruism or the healing power of positive narrative mm. or gratitude and told those stories. Mm. And are those stories individuals? Because I haven't seen your book yet, right? It's not out. So uh, are those stories individuals, researchers, or are they people that you've met, parents you've met in the hospitals, children you've met in the hospitals? Children, parents, and adults who have overcome incredible odds. For example, one of them, Paul Stephen Miller, he was born with a form of dwarfism, and he was like four feet, four foot one, and he was the high school uh, class president, and he was the youngest trustee ever at the University of Pennsylvania, and he went to Harvard Law School and made law review, and when he graduated, he could not get a job, even though 50 firms wanted to interview him. And when he'd show up for these jobs at the leading law firms in the world, and they looked at him, they actually said to his face, we could never hire you because we're not running a freak show in the circus. Oh. And I was his best friend, and his mom had passed away. So he came to me for all the holidays. I was a witness in his wedding. This was devastating for someone who had taken this you know, condition he was born with and done everything in his power to live a purposeful life that wasn't defined by a physical disability. Yeah. So he finally got a job and fast forward, um, 
he was tapped by President Bill Clinton and then George Bush and then Barack Obama. He became a commissioner of the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the architects who wrote the Americans with Disability Act that forbade companies from discriminating against physical, mental, and emotional challenges. Yes. So that's someone who's living a purpose. And he is one of the exemplars in my resilience chapter. And the reason I tell these stories in the most bare bones way is because the people listening to your show and the people reading my book will say, what can I be more grateful for right here, right now? The people listening to Paul's story will say, where's my resilience? Where's my courage? Where, what do I want to do that will just make me feel like myself? And that's the point. How can I live bigger and bolder no matter right. what everybody has said to me. Right, which right. is How what you're I? about, which yeah. is what you're all about. And that's what you give to people. That's your gift. You, you know, people will say horrible things to people. I call that the, do you think before you speak? But in fairness to everyone, everyone's thinking, I don't know what to say. I don't want to be here right now. I'd much rather be watching a show on Netflix. I'd much rather be running down the street in the opposite direction. So, um, teaching people, you know, to say, I'm sorry that you're going through this, or I feel so much for you. I don't really know what to say, but I just want you to know that I care Mm. is such a helpful healing thing instead Mm -hmm. of just blabbing on. Um, And again, comparing and despairing, telling people, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And right. It's, it's never, that happened to me recently where I texted a challenge I was going through with a friend and she then told me what was going on with her. Like, not really what I, we're not, that's not really what I'm looking at, you know, and it, and it does, it happens because we don't know. We're never taught how to support someone. And I love what you're sharing that, first of all, this book is, sounds incredible. I cannot wait for this to be out. And when you have it, we will update the show notes to reflect that. So for anyone right. who listens to it later, um, and really sharing with us that when we all encounter people who are struggling, because aren't we all in some way? to say, I feel you. I don't, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. Those kinds of things. Absolutely. And teaching people, and this is really important. I taught my children this when they were very young, to love yourself. Mm-hmm. I love myself. And I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I love myself because I'm a good person and I'm a pure person. And, you know, you're always going to spend all your time with yourself. So what I tell my kids when they were young is you should enjoy that time. Learn how to be (laughs) Be with you. And it's really a tragedy when you look at people in cars and planes and everywhere at restaurants and these kids are like glued to screens. It's like what happened to sitting at a table and talking to people or just looking out the window? And I think that books are really wonderful for that, listening to uh, books on tape or reading books, losing yourself in stories, positive stories, challenging stories, and enjoying the company you keep. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, the conversations that we have in our brains, you know, the brain can be a really dark and scary place or it could be a wonderful place. Yes. 
and uh, the work of Kristen Neff about self-compassion and learning to love yourself. And I know you have, uh, you've gone through her course, um, talking to yourself in loving terms, the way you would talk to an itty bitty baby or the way you would talk to a beautiful dog, or if you're a cat person, a, a kitten, <laughs> talk to yourself in loving and respectful ways. That's also part of positive relationships, appreciation, gratitude, and then appreciating your signature strengths, appreciating when you messed up. Wow, that was hard. That was embarrassing. But, you know, it's okay. And, you know, you can have beautiful conversations. And, you know, for my people that are suffering or for all of the people listening, if you're going through a serious challenge or setback or you know someone that you love or you just know someone who's going through a medical crisis or challenge or trauma, the most important thing is to give them the tools to know that they are stronger than they think and that they're not alone and that there's things they can do to experience moments of happiness, moments of joy, and that suffering, we can't prevent suffering, but we can, we have a choice of how we can also choose to notice other things. Yes. Yeah, so, so important. Thank you, Lisa, so much. We can't prevent suffering for anyone. And we can choose what else we see and what else we notice and how we approach the suffering with gratitude. Lisa, it's so beautiful. There's so much that we could talk about, um, so much we could talk about. But I have to, of course, get to our purpose power play round which as you know, is when I ask all my guests a couple of very random questions and whatever's the first thing that comes to your mind is the correct answer. Bring it on. Bring it on, (laughs) Jesus. Yes. All right. So when you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a social worker. And my mom told me you could never do that because you're too emotional. You cry and you're sensitive. Well, I showed her, right? Right. There you go, mom. (laughs) My biggest fans. I know. And she's the one, you know, your story is so beautiful. She's really the one who taught you to be a social worker. I mean, that's, you know, to, to be, to, to be making a difference in the world and to, to put your work toward humanitarian efforts. It's beautiful. I love seeing a woman who there was, you know, something about when she was a little girl that really is informing her purpose later. I love it. Now, other than say one other thing. Yeah. That. I have recaptured in my 30s and 40s and 50s all the things that I loved when I was a little girl. I would sing all the time. Mm. I would play my guitar all the time. And I've brought music back into my life from singing at an event when I do it. Because when I open my mouth and I sing something at the beginning, first of all, it disarms everyone in the audience. Mm. It's not about the performance. It's about saying, I'm right here. And I sing a spiritual song or I sing something like a personal prayer or one of my favorite songs to them. And then I start. And it's like they already saw a little glimpse of who I am. So it's connecting me to those core things that I loved when I was a child, you know, when we were younger and freer and laughed all the time. And it also reminds me to be me. So that's why all the things that we're sharing with the Soaring Words kids and families and now with adults through health and human service agencies and drawing, coloring, playing, those are important things that were a core part of my identity when I was younger. Mm, It's so important. Inside of each of us is the little girl or little boy 
that we were right. pure and, and innocent and was totally on purpose and totally free because he or she knew exactly who you were, right? That, that part of us is still inside of us. So of course, then my second question for you has to be, what is your favorite song to sing? <laughs> uh, I think it would be Corner of the Sky from Pippin. Oh, can I get one line? Sure. Everything has a season. Everything has a time. Show me a reason and I'll soon show you a rhyme. Cats fit on the windowsill. Children fit in the snow. Why do I feel I don't fit in anywhere I go? Rivers belong where they can ramble. Eagles belong where they can fly. I've got to be where my spirit can run free. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Woo! Lisa! Yes, 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 yes. I love seeing a woman on purpose. You are so totally on purpose, which you nailed it, is totally being yourself, expressing your truth, giving your gifts to the world, your multiple gifts, being in your pleasure, being in your purpose, and being in your power. Lisa, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on this episode of the Purpose Girl podcast. You are an incredible gem and a delight that we are blessed and lucky to have in this world. And all of you out there, we hope that you loved, loved, loved this episode of the Purpose Girl podcast. If you did, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or your particular listener and rate us five stars. Just take 60 seconds out of your day to write one sentence because every review that you write is how women around the world are finding us, right? That's how we end up ranking number two in self-help in Macau and number four in self-help in Hong Kong. It's because of your reviews. You are ensuring that women around the world are taking charge of their lives, living like the goddesses that they are, and truly feeling on purpose. Of course, if you haven't yet joined our free Facebook group, go on over to Facebook type in Purpose Girls. It's one word, Purpose Girls or the Women's Happiness Network, and you will find us and click there to join. It's totally free. Every day my team and I post something there for you to read or comment on or share your own celebrations or your struggles, whatever it might be. If you haven't followed me over on Instagram, it's Karen Rockhind or on my business Facebook is Coach Karen Rockhind. If you've not yet gotten your 50 free happiness tips, what are you waiting for? Go on over to PurposeGirl.com, get them totally for free. And as always, you know that I love, love, love hearing from you. I want to hear how this episode impacted you. I want to hear how you want to use this to live your mission and life. Most important thing you can do, of course, is to share this with people you know. If you know of families that are struggling with a child who's ill, if you know of people who are struggling to take part of their pain and turn it into purpose, share this with every woman you know, because together we are changing the world one woman at a time. With that, may you live purposefully. May you love yourself and may you love life. Bye for now.